Welcome back to another episode of the Hitchcock Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock directed thriller North by North Fist. I am but mad North Northwest. When the wind is southerly, I know a hawk from a handsaw. One minute of screen time per episode. Here's your host for Minute 16, who seems to have got his in his hands on some bourbon of his own for this week. Professor Robert G. Black of Cock and Bull Minute, a Trisham Shandy story. A Trisham Was it Monday? Minute 16. Anyway, I'm taking a shot. This is... Because of a couple extra ones in that last minute on Friday, this is my eighth shot in the last four hours. Is that a lot? I don't know. Page 21 of the shooting script changes dated 10-10-58, scene 35-X3. Continued. Valerian has just gotten into the car with a drunken Thornhill. This car is a Mercedes-Benz 220 SE Cabriolet. Thornhill still sings drunkenly. Valerian reaches across and starts the motor. Thornhill mumbles, Don't Don't worry worry about about me, me, fellas. I'll take the bus. 36 to 37 are apparently removed. I don't know what they were. Interior Mercedes-Benz 38. Valerian. The script says he releases the handbrake and pushes Thornhill back, but that's not where we are. The film and the script aren't quite timed. They're, they're not. Valerian takes the wheel and applies his left foot to the accelerator. We can assume that. We can't see his foot. They don't give an insert shot of the foot. As the car starts to move, Valerian glances ahead tensely. I don't know how that works, but sure, he glances ahead. Whatever. Second nine, angle on light, returning to the other car, a Cadillac Coupe de Ville, as the Mercedes drives away. Well, the Cadillac Coupe de Ville is apparently a limousine. Light turns to look behind him, watching the Mercedes leave. And we are inside the Mercedes again with Valerian and Thornhill. Thornhill's head lulls. Second 12, point of view, 38X1. The car is approaching the precipice. We get a nice silhouette of the Mercedes hood ornament. The music kicks it up a notch. And it's worth talking about composer Bernard Herrmann and his relationship with Alfred Hitchcock. Jack Sullivan describes their partnership in Bernard Herrmann. Hitchcock's secret sharer. Quote, That partnership both has a very special professional connection between a director and a composer and also has an intense Conradian relationship that was as volatile as it was productive because he was so meticulously involved with the musical process. Hitchcock often had a close working relationship with his composers, but here the connection was stronger and deeper. Herman was a risky alter ego, a secret sharer who took his cinema into darker places than it had gone before, tying the two artists together in ways that enhanced their careers even as it threatened their sense of identity. Herman is a gold standard for Hitchcock's symphonic sound. End quote. Regarding the descriptor Conradian, I contact Robert Hampson of the Conradian, the Journal of the Joseph Conrad Society. He replied by email. Quote, Conrad actually had a productive collaborative relationship with Ford Maddox Ford, which produced the novel Romance, a genuine collaboration. 
A second novel, The Inheritors, which Ford wrote and J.C. offered advice on the writing, and a novella, The Nature of a Crime, which seems to have been written mainly by Ford. You might be thinking of Conrad's own nature. Conrad was generally extremely civil with a European sense of manners, but his wife records a number of incidents of volatility. To contextualize this, his health had been damaged by his experiences in Africa and elsewhere. He suffered constantly from what he called gout, involving painful swellings of various joints. He also seems to have suffered from depression. He was also heavily in debt for most of his writing life, trying to earn enough by writing to keep his wife and family, perhaps enough to make a man volatile. End quote. In his introduction to Heart of Darkness, A. Michael Mateen describes the relationship between Joseph Conrad and Ford Maddox Ford. Quote, In the fall of 1898, the family moved into Pent Farm, a home near the Kentish coast that Conrad had subleased from a new friend of his, the writer Ford Maddox Ford. The relationship with Ford would prove to be important as the two would go on to collaborate on several projects, most notably the novels The Inheritors 1901 and Romance 1903, before a quarrel would effectively end their friendship. It was also during this period that Conrad began to cultivate relationships with some of the most important writers of the era, several of whom, H.G. Wells, Stephen Crane, and Henry James, were now his neighbors. His second son, John, born in 1906, would in fact be named after his friend, the future Nobel Prize-winning novelist John Galsworthy. End quote. Hermann, 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 Hermann. Herman? Herman. And Mon. Is he and Mon? Does it have an accent? No, it's not French. It's German. And Mon. Yeah, like and Mon. Yeah, that makes sense. And Mon. And Mon. And Mon. Wrote the school. went French again. Hermon. 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 Herman. Herman. Herman wrote the score. Herman wrote the score for seven Hitchcock films from 1955 to 1964. Stop mumbling. For seven Hitchcock films. <laughs> Hermon. Herman? I don't know. Hermon. Herman? Hermon. Wrote the score for seven hertz. <laughs> Get to Hitchcock. Herman wrote the score for seven Hitchcock films from 1955 to 1964. They were The Trouble with Harry, The Man Who Knew Too Much. <laughs> North by Northwest. Psycho. 
The Birds. Morning. Interior Mercedes Benz thirty eight X two. The timing in the script is slightly different than the film. It says, Valerian opens the door to slide and gets ready to jump. Just then, Thornhill. It's Thornhill. <laughs> Kaplan. You're fine. Just. <laughs> Just then, Thornhill, opening a bleary eye, begins to sense what is happening. He turns, puts both hands on Valerian, and gives him a violent shove, saying thickly, Take the bus, too. Valerian falls out of the car. Thornhill grabs the wheel and turns it sharply. Whatever. That's what the script says. Instead, Thornhill starts to sober up, as it were, just as we are back in the Mercedes. Second 14. His initial focus is on the road ahead. Second 15, another shot of the cliff. The car is angled off the road toward the water. Then we are back on Valyrian and Thornhill. Second 16, but now, from the front, through the windshield, as Thornhill turns to look at Valyrian. Wait. What minute are we at? We are back on Valyrian and Thornhill. They're still in the same car. See, I forgot what minute I was on. Valyrian is still in the Mercedes. Okay. Second 16, but now, from the front, through the windshield, as Thornhill turns to look at Valyrian. And we get probably our first sense of Thornhill's potential as a cinematic hero here, as he immediately turns his body, pulls back into the driver's side door, and gets leverage to shove Valerian toward the passenger side door. Whether or not Thornhill notices that the door is open, we might. Second 19, as we get a downward angle just as Thornhill shoves, and Valerian goes right out the car and into the ground. Into the ground, onto the ground. The door's open. I'm pretty sure, because of the scripted way of things, Valerian is getting ready to get out. But he hasn't bothered to get ready to get out yet. We might also notice the rearview mirror has disappeared in this shot as well, though it was there before. Why do so many movies and TV shows take out the rearview mirror like that? Like, it just disappears. Like, you don't need to pretend that there was a mirror. It's not like cars always have a mirror. Don't put your cameraman where the mirror can see it. Don't put your act... Okay. I'm thinking of Homicide Life on the Street, for example. Which case, lots of time we get shots where people... It's like, one detective... What's his name? Kyle Sikor? What's he playing? He's playing some guy. I don't remember his name. We get one dude in the thing, and then... I was gonna say Kenneth Branagh, but that's not it. That's a Hamlet guy. Uh... Michael? Gerald. Felix... Black dude. It was put up for like Emmys and Gold Globes like every year for some reason, even though his wasn't the Kyle Kyle Sikor? Kyle Sikor. Kyle good Kyle Sikor. Kyle Seeker. Kyle Sikor. I don't know how you pronounce his name. He was always the thing like my approach to the show is like his character. Let's look at it. IMDB app Yes, I have the app on my phone. Kyle Sikor. Bayless, that's his name. 
black dude was named Pembleton. His name was, what did I say it was a second ago? I don't remember. But it's Andre Brower as Frank Pembleton. He was cool. But for me, it was always about Kyle Secor's approach as Tim Bayless. Because Bayless was this this guy that was like, in over his head, really wanted to do the right thing, but didn't understand that you don't always get what you want. I was talking about homicide. Mirrors! They took the mirrors out of the cars all the time. Because they're driving in cars a lot. Like every episode, someone's driving in a car. Anyway. Valerian rolls away from the road as we hear the engine rev and the Mercedes leaves frame to the left. Just as it is almost gone, second 22, we cut to Thornhill from the left. Head lolling. You can't see me. I'm demonstrating the lolling. As he tries to really focus. Second 23, the road ahead. The frame centered on the left lane, but that hood ornament is still pointed at the water. Thornhill may be... Apparently I put it in my notes later, whatever. Reticle. Just remember that word. Thornhill may be focusing, but he has not taken control of the vehicle yet. Second 24, cut to the Cadillac, comes to a stop. So Valerian, now on his feet, can get in. Second 26, Thornhill. Second 28, the ocean. Hood ornament well in the water. The hood ornaments. I just said remember the word reticle. I think I don't bring up the word reticle until next minute, which is stupid. I should bring it up now. The hood ornament keeps aiming us as to where our attention should be. Where's the car going? Regardless of the frame, the frame of the film is not the same. The hood ornament is in the water, the road barely even in the bottom right corner of frame. A screeching sound. Less than a second later, Valerian and Light in the Cadillac coming to a stop, watching. They think this guy's going to go right off the end of the road and into the ocean. He's going to die. And everything's fine because George Kaplan's dead. And then they're going to find out they went after some guy named Roger O'Thornhill. And they're like, who's this Roger O'Thornhill guy? What is going on? And it doesn't matter because he's dead. Either way. Second 30, exterior, Mercedes-Benz 38X3 from behind. The outside wheels travel along the edge of the precipice. Second 31, Thornhill at the wheel, 38X4. Looks ahead, only slightly aware of his danger. He gives the wheel another wrench. Second 32, close-up, Mercedes-Benz 38X5. The rear outside wheels over the edge spins in midair for a moment. The script says, Then the inner wheels get a grip on the crumbling edge, and the car sh- shoots for- and the car shoots forward. Instead, we get a close-up, Thornhill at wheel, 38X6. Second 24, as he leans over the door and looks down. Forward and then backward, then directly downward again, leaning even farther out. In the script, it says he turns, glances back, sees point of view 39, Valerian in the act of getting into the already moving limousine. This has, of course, already happened. Second 37, POV the tire, the cliff, the ocean, directly below. Though to be fair, this is not strictly speaking a POV shot because Thornhill is not above the tire. That's not how cars work. Frederick Jameson suggests in Spatial Systems in North by Northwest, quote, The audience sits behind the wheel of a greening limousine as the screen itself veers giddyingly into space, taking the entire cinema with it out of control. End quote. Not entirely right, because the limousine is the other car, this is the Mercedes-Benz, and this will be deliberately echoed at the climax of the film looking down from Mount Rushmore. The tire spins. There is smoke or dust, but since the tire is in the air, I am not sure why. 
Second 38, Thornhill raises his head abruptly, knowing what he saw is not right, and so he leans his head forward again, like he will check again, then immediately turns his attention forward, and we cut second 40 to the angle of the car over the edge again as it moves forward, then rear left tire touches ground, and Thornhill is off. Second 42, Valyrian and Light in the Cadillac, realizing Thornhill has gotten out of their death trap. Light turns to Valyrian, then forward again as Valyrian turns to Light. Light gets the car going again. Second 44, exterior, Mercedes-Benz 39X1 from a distance. It picks up speed and goes creaming down the winding precipitous road and around the curve ahead to the right and out of view. Second 46, close on Thornhill from the front, his eyes are barely open. The road behind him, which seems a projection at first, but might actually be sort of real, disappears to the left as he rounds a curve. He opens his eyes, a screech of tires, as he holds the turn. Second 48, a white fence comes into view. We will see this fence again and again in these next couple of minutes, and you've surely seen, probably, this exact fence in many films over the years. Or so I thought, but it seems less farmland on either side, and I think I actually found the road they used for this very sequence. Portrero Road, Newberry Park, California. 40, cut. Second 50, the limousine, Valerian and Light, 41, in hot and angry pursuit, the script says. In the film, they seem hardly even excited. Second 52, Thornhill again, passing that white fence, abruptly startled. Second 54, POV, a larger boulder entry at the right side of the road, and right side of frame, but the hood ornament is angled here. The left side of frame in darkness, the car barely makes the curve to the left. Then up ahead of the road, curves to the right and left again. A Ford Country sedan coming toward Thornhill, white on top of its night, so the color is iffy, but it matters if it's a blue-green color because this chase will involve several cars with very similar coloring. (sighs) But already, in the 50s, we've got one of my movie sound effect pet peeves. The The driver, the driver, the driver, the driver, the driver of that Ford clearly has both of his hands on the wheel as he panics and swerves to the right, as Thornhill is in the wrong lane going down the hill, and yet we hear his car horn, which no one is honking. (sighs) Then we are back on Thornhill, the Cadillac in the distance behind him, the Ford swerving back into view between them and the minute ends. I've been your host for minute 16. Professor Robert E.G. Black. Nine? Ten? How many shots in? I forget. If you'd like to hear more from me... (laughs) Don't. No, really. Check out Cock and Bull Minute. A Tristram... A Tristram... Back up. Check out Cock and Bull Minute. A Tristram Shandy Story. A podcast where ostensibly we look at the film Tristram Shandy one minute at a time. Episode after episode after episode, we have yet to get to the actual film. You're welcome. You can find the Hitchcock Minute podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Play or at the main site HitchcockMinute.com. Find us on Facebook at The Man on Washington's Nose or on Twitter at Hitchcockland. Join us here next time on the Hitchcock.